This podcast was funded by and developed in collaboration with Boston Scientific. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and a chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to another of our podcasts in our educational series. And this specific podcast uh, looks at uh, the concept of intrarenal pressure uh, during uh, our endoscopic procedures and uh, what we should be thinking about and perhaps how to modify uh, some of those associated factors. Um, joining me as our, our thought leader and expert in the field is Dr. Manoj Manga. Um, he really doesn't need any introduction, but, but I'll introduce him nonetheless. Um, Dr. Manga is professor and uh, chair of urology at the uh, University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Uh, he is uh, very well known and extensively published in the field of endourology, um, having published over 400 peer-reviewed publications, as well as receiving research funding from the NIH and other organizations. Um, Manoj, really, thank you so much for, for your time and obviously in advance for your expertise in doing this podcast with me today. Well, Jay, thank you very much for the kind invitation and introduction, and welcome to our audience. Thank you for joining us today. So, you know, Manoja, if we look at what urologists do in general, we, we so readily incorporate endourologic techniques uh, into our armamentarium, whether that's in subspecialty-based practices, whether that's in general urology. So maybe just to sort of kick off this podcast, maybe take me through you know, wh why is this whole issue and concept of intrarenal pressure important? Why should this be something that our listeners think about and, and monitor during their surgeries? Well, Jay, thank you for that important question. We've known now for at least 80 years that intrarenal pressures, when they elevate, whether it's due to pathologic obstruction from a stone or a stricture, or from an endoscopic procedure where we're irrigating, in either of those two scenarios, if the intrarenal pressure increases, we run the risk of pyelovenous, pyelomphatic, pyelosinus backflow. And that can lead to fluid overload. But more importantly, if there's a risk of bacteria being in that fluid, be it urine or irrigation fluid, we run the risk of sepsis. So I think that's the critical reason about why maintaining low intrarenal pressures will hopefully decrease the risk of morbidity with our procedures. And, and it seems like this, this concept is, is becoming increasingly uh, germane in practice, right? I mean, we see more and more complex stones being managed by, uh, say, ureteroscopy or percutaneous approaches. And, and certainly, as we tackle more complex stones, these, these procedures are, are longer and more extensive. Yeah, so you touch on some very important points, Jay. Uh, one of them being operative time. And in addition to how high the pressure gets, how long it remains high will impact outcomes. So one of the important concepts is to try to be expeditious with our surgeries, try to minimize operative time. And when operating, try to tailor the pressure of the irrigant to how much do we really need. So we commonly use ALERA as a concept for radiation, as little as reasonable. The similar uh, concept could be applied to high intrarenal pressures, using high pressure only when really needed to visualize. 
In terms of how to minimize the risk of high intrarenal pressures during endoscopic surgery, whether it's ureteroscopy or PCNL, the main concept is if this is your sheath or your lumen, and this is your scope, having enough room between the sheath and the scope to allow efflux of fluid will be the way to maintain a low intrarenal pressure. So whether the sheath is an AMPLAT sheath or a uh, ureteral access sheath for PCNL or ureteroscopy respectively, looking at the size of the scope in comparison to the size of the access will help keep intrarenal pressures low. So, so maybe we'll, we'll, let's talk about perhaps ureteroscopy as a starting point, because that, that's such a common procedure that, that in practice. And you talked about ureteral access sheets. Um, maybe I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but, but is there a certain size uh, diameter sheath that you feel most comfortable with where you, you are accomplishing this goal of efflux from the kidney without the concern of potential ureteral um, injury or, or abrasion from the, the sheath itself. Maybe take us through your thought process on that. Yes, thank you, Jay. So the size of the sheath has two variables. The first is the length, and the second is the internal and outer diameter. In terms of length, when doing ureteroscopy in the kidney, it's important to try to position the tip of the access sheath close to the UPJ because we've shown that if it's positioned in the mid-ureter or distal ureter, the ability to mitigate high intrarenal pressures decreases. It's helpful to have the tip at the UPJ or in the proximal ureter. So for the length of the sheath, typically a 26 to 36 centimeter ureteral access sheath will be good for women, and a 45 to 46 centimeter sheath will be good for men. I'll typically start the procedure with semi-rigid ureteroscopy for a few reasons. The first is on a fairly common occasion, we'll find a pathology in the distal ureter or mid-ureter that we hadn't anticipated. So if there's a stone in that location and we place a sheath, we run the risk of injuring the ureter and pushing the stone out of the wall of the ureter. The second thing is the semi-rigid ureter scope will dilate the ureteral orifice and make it easier for us to eventually place the access sheath. And the third thing is I can gauge the length of the sheath based on how far the scope goes up. In terms of the di diameter of the sheath, it depends first on how much stone burden do we have. If it's a relatively small stone burden, if it's four or five stones, all less than four millimeters, then an 11-13 sheath should suffice. In contrast, if we're trying to work on a partial staghorn in a patient who can't undergo PCNL, in that situation, if possible, we may try a 13-15 French sheath. What's important is with any sheath is not to be comfortable, but to be cautious, specifically in terms of stopping if one meets resistance when placing the access sheath. Getting back specifically to the question of intrarenal pressures, the size of the sheath should be large enough to allow for efflux compared to the size of the scope. So some scopes are 7.5 French from the tip to the top, and in those scopes, you can maintain low intrarenal pressures with a 10-14 French sheath. In contrast, some of our older digital scopes are larger, and they may require a 12-14 or 13-15 French sheath to maintain low intrarenal pressures. So that was really great. I, I love the way that you, you really summarized both the importance of placement of where the sheets should extend to, but, but also the, the diameter considerations for ureteroscopy. 
So, so maybe let's pivot and talk a little bit about the percutaneous approach. Maybe can you take me through sort of that similar thought process with uh, not necessarily ureteral access sheets, but perhaps with the percutaneous access sheets? Yes. So with the percutaneous access sheets, there has been a wonderful evolution from a standard uh, 30 French Amplast dilator to miniaturization. Once again, when we look at uh, miniaturized tracks, it's important to look at the size of the sheath compared to the size of the scope. If the sheath and the scope are fairly snug, then I have concerns that perhaps the high adrenal pressure may lead to a higher risk of systemic inflammatory response syndromes or other types of septic complications. In contrast, if one's using a very small scope with like an eight French ureter scope through a 12 French sheath, there should be sufficient capacity for the efflux of fluid so as to mitigate that risk. Another concept would be if one's doing an endoscopic guided puncture, placing an access sheath from below, that access sheath can act to mitigate the intrenal pressures from the percutaneous surgery and similarly decrease the risk of sepsis. So you talked about one important concept uh, being using enough pressure to allow you to visualize the field, but, but obviously being cognizant of the amount of pressure that we are putting into the pelvis via any approach. And, and um, what are the different ways that that can be accomplished? So, I mean, there's certainly the handheld pressure irrigators. There are the pressure irrigators that are perhaps set at a certain uh, manometry uh, to, to regulate. Uh, do you have any advice uh, for our listeners on uh, maybe what's used commonly or what you personally like just from, from that perspective of, of trying to maintain a constant pressure? Yes, for ureteroscopy, I typically use a single action pump. There are a variety of handheld devices, as you allude to, and the single action pump, I believe, causes less hand fatigue and also allows you to have no flow if the stone is starting to wash up the ureter, but also have a very, fairly vigorous pulse of flow to clear the field of view. At times, one might even use that to move the stone from one location to another to make it more accessible to the laser or the basket. The utilization of uh, a pressure bag around a, a large bag of irrigant is another alternative, and in that situation, one can use the stopcock on the endoscope to control how much fluid there is. I think irrespective of what modality one uses for pressure, being able to control the pressure and utilize only as much pressure as needed is important. In my hands, the single action pump works well, but other, other approaches are available. I think the automated uh, pressurized systems uh, might be a little bit more challenging for people to remember to modulate how much pressure is going in. Uh, requires a, a second person in the operating room to be, to be controlling the, the panel. Uh, and also, when we've tried to measure the pressure at the tip of the scope and compare it to what it says on the machine, unfortunately, there isn't great concordance. So it's perhaps a little bit unreliable to say that if you set the pressure at 200, that's really what the kidney is being exposed to. So we, we've talked uh, thus far a lot about um, uh, ureteroscopic or percutaneous management of stone disease. But maybe could you walk me um, on a slight tangent, which is 
What about, for example, uh, upper tract carcinomas, where where maybe you're trying to biopsy a lesion and, and fulgurate? Um, is your approach for, for those scenarios any different, or do you still adhere to the same principles that you've taken us through thus far? So the uh, principles remain the same uh, with regards to upper tract transitional cell cancer and maintaining low intrarenal pressures. Uh, Typically, these procedures are shorter, uh, so the issue of operative time is, is hopefully not as critical as it is with a larger stone. Uh, the importance of maintaining a clear field of view is just as critical in terms of monitoring the depth of resection. Uh, I suspect the risk of bleeding might be a little bit higher in these procedures, uh, and so the need for intermittent high pressures is going to be greater. Uh, certainly one of the theoretical concerns would be seeding of tumor with prolonged high intrarenal pressure, uh, though I'm not aware of any specific studies that, that would perhaps evaluate circulating tumor uh, cells or anything like that, or long-term uh, potential risk of greater metastasis. Uh, but I, I suspect sticking with the as little as possible or as little as reasonable approach for intrarenal pressures for any endoscopic procedure is a good mandate. Yeah, I, I've often wondered to the point you just made, I, I don't think there's any data on it, but but certainly when you look at the concerns about high intrarenal pressures and pilovenous backflow, uh, you always worry if you're dealing with a malignancy, what are going what, what is going to be the consequence of that? And, and again, there's no good data on it, but certainly um, you do think about that as being a concern. Mm -hmm. So, so you you started off this podcast by by really highlighting two important points with regard to intrarenal pressure. Certainly, decreasing the risk of fluid absorption, decreasing the risk of infection and sepsis. Uh, but what about pain, postoperative and intraoperative pain? I, I mean, obviously, you, you've seen we've transitioned so much to. Um, opioid limiting pathways, opioid reduction pathways. Um, do you think that this concept all ties together uh, in that whole realm of intraoperative and postoperative pain control? Excellent question, Jay. And I reflect back to the early teachings I received with regards to interstitial cystitis and how perhaps if that's a urothelial defect issue and we hydrodistend the bladder, typically those patients would have exacerbation of their pain for a few days before we might see some improvement. So in a similar fashion, one might hypothesize that hydrodistending the renal pelvis changes the permeability of the urethelium in the renal pelvis and might lead to more pain. We tried to evaluate that by looking at uh, petechiae and videotaping the amount of petechiae in the renal pelvis after procedure and then looking at pain scores and unfortunately didn't see a correlation but I think the next step will be to actually monitor intrarenal pressures and see if those impact pain scores postoperatively. So are we, to dovetail on the point you just made, are we, uh, two questions, are we able to actually monitor um, intrarenal pressures now? And, and if the answer to that is yes, has, have there been any studies that have associated intrarenal pressures with any type of perioperative outcomes? So uh, up till now, the, the main way to be able to monitor intrarenal pressures during ureteroscopy would be to have a nephrostomy tube. 
and monitor the pressure with a barometer through that. And that has been done in certain patients uh, who present with a nephrostomy tube but are undergoing retrograde ureteroscopy. Typically, those studies have evaluated the impact of ways to mitigate pressure, such as a sheath or the type of irrigation. Uh, so I'm not aware of any evaluations of the pressures in comparison to the postoperative pain. Hopefully in the near future, there will be some technology available to help us monitor intrarenal pressures in the kidney. Uh, and with those types of technologies, we may be able to not only identify how does pressure impact pain, but also how does decreasing the pressure, monitoring the pressure interoperatively improve outcomes. When we look at um, the, 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 the concept of intrarenal pressure, um, maybe one sort of related question for you is, is there any difference between any of the media that we theoretically could use up in the upper tract, whether it's uh, saline or ionic versus non-ionic, or, or is it really the, the whole concept is intrarenal pressure and the medium that we used for, for irrigation is, is less of an issue? So we typically do recommend saline for irrigation, whether it be for PCNL or for ureteroscopy. With a prolonged endoscopic procedure under high pressure, there would be a risk of hyponatremia, hemolytic anemia, renal failure. So those would be some of the risks of using water. However, in the specific question you raised earlier with regards to transitional cell cancer, one could hypothesize that for a shorter case where there may be concerns of seeding or dissemination of cancer cells, using water in that situation might mitigate that risk. So one of the, obviously you're very well published in, in this realm. And, and, I, and I think one of the important things is, is data and data is very helpful when, when we're talking about concepts like this. Uh, I maybe ask you, could you take us through uh, several of your articles that you have um, looked at maybe in this realm of, of irrigation pressure and intrarenal pressure, and maybe walk us through a few of these studies uh, that you've completed. I appreciate that opportunity, Jay. Uh, maybe I'll start with one uh, trial that was a randomized clinical trial. Uh, 90 patients randomized to either low pressure or high pressure irrigation, utilizing an automated machine from Thermodex. And we were able to demonstrate that as one might expect with a higher pressure, the subjective operative view as graded by the surgeon was better. However, we also found that the risk for systemic inflammatory response syndrome was significantly higher if one used a high pressure system. So it does, this I, I think uh, supports other investigators who have reported that how high the pressure gets as well as how long it maintain, maintains a pressure over 30 millimeters of mercury correlates with the risk of postoperative fever and or systemic inflammatory response syndrome. One question I would ask you is, is you, you talked, you just mentioned that 30 millimeters of, of or 30 centimeters of water, 30 millimeters of mercury. How, how was that number sort of derived or maybe just, can you explain on that a little bit? Yeah, so those numbers uh, were actually first reported, I think, back in the 1940s, uh, where radiographically investigators were able to demonstrate uh, the, the contrast extravasated 
into the pilovenous, pilosinus, pilolymphatic systems. And so traditionally, those have been pressures that have been used as a benchmark for safety. Okay. So what about, um, I think you've done some work as well, maybe in the in more of the preclinical setting, perhaps, um, or maybe it is in the clinical setting, I, 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 but, but looking at the impact of uh, high pressure endoscopy and, and sort of renal histology, uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about that study that you completed. Yes, thank you. So we uh, did two studies, I believe you're alluding to, in a porcine model. The first was looking at high pressure during ureteroscopy with or without an access sheath. The pressures that we tested were 50, 100, and 200 millimeters of mercury. And in the irrigation fluid, we uh, duped it with India ink. So the endpoint for this study was to have a blinded pathologist look at slides and see how far did the India ink penetrate uh, through the kidney. So we found that when an, a ureteral access sheath was used at the 50 or 100 millimeters of mercury pressure, there was no penetration. So the sheath prevented uh, irrigant from entering into the renal parenchyma. And even at the higher 200 millimeters of mercury, only about 10 or 20% of the kidneys demonstrated some evidence of penetration through the wall of the kidney. In contrast, if a sheath was not used, in a third of the uh, animals, we found that there was significant penetration even at the low pressures, 50 and 100 millimeters of mercury. And uh, there was complete penetration of the, of the parenchyma at the higher pressure without a sheet. So in summary, that one did confirm not only that the pressures correlate with how deep irrigant can penetrate into the kidney, but also that the use of a uteral access sheath could mitigate that risk. The second study was more geared towards the question of a mini PCNL to a standard PCNL. Again, in a porcine model, we instilled E. coli into the renal pelvis and then performed PCNL for an hour, either with a 14 French sheath or a 30 French sheath. We found that in the smaller sheath, the 14 French sheath, the risk of a high intrarenal pressure was greater and the time above that high intrarenal pressure was longer compared to using a standard access sheath. When we looked at the kidney, the liver, the spleen, and the blood, we found that the risk of finding bacteria in those different areas was higher if the uh, sheath was small compared to if the sheath was large. So this study, I think, confirms that there may be a higher risk of higher intrarenal pressures when the mini PCNL and also raises a suspicion that if the urine is infected or if the stone is infected, then there may be a higher risk of seeding of bacteria even beyond the kidney to the blood, the liver, and the spleen. So, so the, the study that you just mentioned is so interesting because, as you know, I feel like the trend that we're seeing in urology and, and a lot of specialties is to... Um, further miniaturize the treatments we give. Regular PCNL to mini PCNL, uh, multi-port robotics, a single port robotics, et cetera. And, and the data even that you're showing here, I guess is concerning in that because you're using a mini sheath, 
while the theoretical invasiveness into the kidney is less, the consequences of this pilovenous backflow and high intrarenal pressures may actually have fairly significant systemic findings. Is that right? Yes, I think if we're to one were to broadly summarize the mini PCNL literature, it's fairly supportive that a mini PCNL will decrease your transfusion rate from about four percent to one percent. So that's a, a definite advantage of a mini PCNL. However, the bulk of the literature would support that the operative times are longer. And for what data we have, it appears the pressures are going to be higher. So balancing those two things to try to decide whether mini perk has more benefit than risk, uh, I think deserves further study. The, the answer isn't there yet. Uh, and there are good arguments on both sides. Sure. Maybe just a, a related question, uh, and I'm just talking out loud, but but when you're looking at the mini PCNL based upon some of what you're showing here, is there any data to suggest having some sort of ureteral catheter to perhaps uh, decompress the, the renal pelvic volume? Is that at all uh, considered in, or incorporated into the, the practice of mini PCNL? Yes, uh, so Jay, that certainly is one alternative to have a ureteral access sheath at the time of mini PCNL to decrease intranal pressures, likely very helpful. Similarly, there are specialized sheaths that allow uh, aspiration of the renal pelvis during the procedure. Uh, so those are some other novel technologies that may hold value. Um, so I suspect that mini PCNL, both in terms of instrumentation and technique, will continue to evolve to the point where perhaps it'll become the standard. So um, one of the practical questions I might ask you, and maybe there is no specific time point, but, but you mentioned early on that short, shorter or timely surgery is, is, is key here, that, that the longer that we have a patient under ureteroscopy, um, even with some of the, the mitigating effects that you discussed, the, the risk just goes up over time. In your mind, do you have a certain threshold uh, that you say, you know, this is best served as a staged procedure, that, that you know, we, we have worked here long enough that some of the risks that you're talking about are going to increase substantially? Maybe your thoughts on that. Yes, uh, Sujay, I typically stop an endoscopic procedure, ureteroscopy at 90 minutes, PCNL at two hours. One reason is that if I'm not done at that time point, there's something wrong. Either there's bleeding, there's complicated anatomy, my access wasn't as optimal as it should have been, and I'll have a better chance of giving the patient a happy and good outcome by perhaps staging the procedure. But the second thing is the main topic for today, which is intrarenal pressures, amount of irrigant that's absorbed, the risk of septic complications, all those things do increase with a longer surgery. So I, I typically stick to 90 minutes for ureteroscopy and two hours for PCNL. So uh, Manoj, maybe to just sort of summarize, what, what are some of the uh, the, the, the key takeaways or, or the high points that our listeners should maybe walk away from this podcast with uh, regarding endoscopic procedures and intrarenal pressure? What are maybe the, the key take-homes? I think the key take-homes are that intrarenal pressures are important, that currently we have a number of ways to mitigate high intrarenal pressures that we've discussed today, 
the hope is in the future we'll be able to monitor those pressures and perhaps utilize that information to perform better and safer surgeries. But for now, keeping in consideration the length of the surgery, the ability to maintain lower intranal pressures by using a larger sheath, a smaller scope, and focusing on how the flow of the surgery is going, stopping and stenting at any point, if you feel coming back another day is going to be best for the patient. Um, no, I, I think your, your last point, and, and I, I really, uh, I, I like the fact that you have some time points that, that you have in your mind, because I do think to all the points you highlighted that um, in many of these cases, in the absence of having perfect measurements, for example, while we're doing these surgeries real time, having a rough clock in your mind so that uh, you can stop. And, and, the, and the nice thing about endourology surgeries for stone disease is that uh, you can always put a tube in, put a stent in, and come back another day, and, and as you said, safely do the operation uh, without uh, sort of the inherent risk of, of proceeding on for, for multiple uh, hours subsequently. Um, well, Manoj, first of all, I really want to thank you. This is uh, very insightful. Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of great work in this field, and, uh, and the opportunity to share some of your studies, which are really evidence-based, is, is a benefit to us. And uh, for our audience, I really appreciate your time. And for any more information on this topic, uh, please visit us at aoanet.org university. Uh, Manoj, thanks so much. Very much appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Jay. Thank you to all of you. <laughs>